You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter in a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis State. It is September, Don. What a beautiful day, but boy, it's cooler than I expected. It's cooler than average. We've spent the last week, let's see, a week ago, we hit 92 degrees on Wednesday. That was the warmest day of the last seven. It's been dropping down to where today, remember Lois and I brought or record the show on Wednesday. So it's Wednesday, September 20th for broadcast on Thursday, September 21st. And today's high is going to be 82 degrees with 53 degree night temperature tonight, mostly clear. Thursday, uh, going to be sunny and a bit windy. It looks like some north winds coming in, but you know, 10 mile an hour, not 30 mile an hour, 81 degrees. They are bringing in some smoke from much further north in the state. So it's pretty hazy this morning. And we'll see some more of that over the next few days. Uh, Thursday night temperature, this is an important data point, 50 degrees. Thursday night, 50, 50, 50, 50. So a lower than average by about five degrees. And that has some... That some, kill any plants? some significance in your vegetable garden. We'll come back to that in a moment. Friday, 80 degrees and sunny. Oh, my goodness. You know, as a retail nursery owner, I look at certain weather conditions and go, oh, God, we'll be busy. <laughs> Friday, 80 degrees and sunny. Yes, sir. Friday night, 51 degrees, mostly clear. Saturday, 78 and sunny. Here's the slight and curious change for September. Saturday night, partly cloudy, 52 hmm. Sunday, mostly sunny, 78. Sunday night, partly cloudy, 54. Monday, mostly sunny, 77. Monday night, a slight chance of showers, partly cloudy, with a low around 57. And Tuesday, a slight chance of showers, mostly sunny, with a high near 78 on Tuesday. Um, you know, September, we don't usually have rain in September. No, our average, I think our average rainfall in September is, you know, less than an inch, but it does happen. Just a year ago in September, we had a three inch rainstorm, which was That's quite, true. quite novel was at the time. We all talked about it, didn't we? Cleared out the smoke real nicely and uh, improved things quite a bit. This is not real firm. There's a, a low pressure thing heading towards the Pacific Northwest is going to move down over Northern California. The extended discussion coming in Sunday is what they're talking about. This Pacific frontal system is expected to spread precipitation into the northwestern portions of the state Sunday afternoon into Sunday night. Rain then spreads southeast over the forecast area, including us, Sacramento, Monday into Tuesday. The models keep the bulk of the rainfall north of I-80. Uh, forecast uncertainty increases as you go into midweek because the models are showing different outcomes. One of them shows drier weather Wednesday. The other one shows wetter weather Wednesday. But distinctly below normal high temperatures are forecast for the whole area. Going to be in the 70s to low 80s in the Central Valley. There will be some gusty winds as the system moves through. But this is feeling, as a couple customers have commented coming in, buying vegetables and stuff, it feels weirdly like fall in September. Well, yeah. Tomorrow is the first day of fall, just for the record. <laughs> but 
ordinarily, if you aren't, if you're either new to this area, and by the way, welcome to town, all your new UC Davis students. It's move-in day at the dorms yesterday and today, and uh, heavy, heavy traffic of people moving into uh, apartments and out into town as well earlier in the month. Welcome to Davis. Now, you need to understand something that I learned as soon as I moved here. Fall doesn't begin in September here usually. Fall begins late in October here usually. Ordinarily, we have sunny, warm, dry weather all through September and very typically through the first two to three weeks of October as well. And I mean, temperatures in the 80s, sunny and pleasant. It has even been over 100 degrees in the first week of October more than once in the years that I've been here. Generally, the last date of 100 plus degree weather has been in the first week of October. And no, that doesn't normally happen, but that's when it has happened if it's going to. And by the third week of October, we're beginning to feel a lot cooler. We're just having this all a month early this year, and nobody's particularly complaining about it, I will say. Uh, I did mention 50 degrees. Okay, that's an important threshold for tomatoes. Not that anything is going to go wrong with the plant. Plants are finishing up. There's fruit out there ripening. And I am finding, as are others, if you go out and you try to tug on a tomato fruit, as I mentioned last week, that's fully ripe on the vine, a fair number of them have started to spoil because as we get colder and as we get more dew on the surface of the vegetable while it's lingering longer into the morning, uh, there's just a higher likelihood of spoilage organisms getting into the ripening, softening fruit. You can simply avoid this by picking them while they're still firm, even fully colored up. And that's what I've been doing. I went out this morning and picked a bowl of tomatoes, uh, big red tomatoes that are almost ripe. And a couple of the ones on those same plants had gone a little past that stage. Yes, you can pick those. You can cut out the softened parts, but the spoilage organisms move in rapidly as the night temperatures decrease and we have longer periods of dew in the morning. So just harvesting a little earlier when the, the, the fruit is fully fully colored up but not soft will give you better results than if you wait until it's literally soft ripe on the vine normally i wouldn't be saying that in the middle of september normally i'd be saying pick like crazy let them ripen fully like crazy that's all fine but with these cooler temperatures and higher moisture content spoilage organisms get in fast so that's just a quick note to conserve some of your crop that way and if you do pick them firm like don mm -hmm. said when you get them inside rinse them off dry them off those yep. spoilage organisms will be on the surface and you can just wash them away. Yeah, I have a dish towel on my counter right now. I picked about 35 tomatoes this morning. I'm gonna rinse them off. I'm gonna set them on the towel, pat dry them, make sure they're dry and they'll just sit there and it'll take two to three days for them to get fully ripe for me to use. And I just kind of go through the ones that are riper as I go. Question came up last week about how to preserve your, your summer vegetables. Well, one of the first things is to make sure they don't spoil. And a simple way is to prevent moisture on the surface, let them dry with either air underneath them, like on a rack. I do have some racks for this purpose or just on dish towels and turn them over each, you know, every day or every few hours. So they're not sitting with moist skin touching a surface like a kitchen counter where you might get spoilage organisms. Try to use them as quickly as you can, but inside you have more control over the temperature and humidity. Lots of people harvesting great and some people saying they didn't get great results this year and uh, chatting with one of the master gardeners who runs a table down at the farmer's market. They're getting the same feedback. Lots of people coming up to the tables with this kind of weather. Uh, the summer garden is still producing for many people, most. Uh, the winter garden is going in now, so there's a lot of questions about that. And it, we have a consistent pattern. If they didn't get good results with their tomatoes, Master Gardener and I have taken this one I'm talking to, have taken to asking two questions immediately. Are you using raised planters? 
And how are you watering? Are you using drip irrigation? Because those are the two common factors in people who did not succeed. Raised planters are fine, but you have to water more often. If you're watering with drip irrigation, you're generally not running it long enough. We had a great summer for summer vegetable production this year. If your tomato didn't, I had heirloom tomatoes, my pineapple variety, which I usually get maybe five or six really nice big fruit on. So it's worth growing if you have lots of space, but five or six tomatoes is not gonna be a yield that most people are gonna think is outstanding. My pineapple variety, more than 20 fruit, all of them wow. over a pound, all of them over a pound, and there's still two or three hanging on there. Uh, so that's one example of an heirloom that's done extremely well this year because we had relatively, I know if you're new to this area, this sounds a little, a little odd, relatively mild summer. We only had three or four heat waves. There were two or three days over 100 degrees, and then it quickly got back down into our normal temperature range. We had a lot of pollination weather this year. More than 50% of our days were suitable for self-pollination of tomatoes, in other words, below 90 degrees. And so you should have gotten good results. So if you didn't, it could be a nutritional thing. People ask about that. Should I have fed it with something? Typically, that's not a big issue here. It might be an erased planter. If the soil you brought in drains very fast and doesn't hold nutrients, could have been a factor. But much, much more commonly, an indeterminate tomato plant needs 10 to 12 gallons of water a week in order to grow vigorously, sustain the fruit, keep growing and flowering and fruiting. An indeterminate type, uh, that, that's the indeterminate type. The determinate types, which grow to a certain size, set and stop, need, let's say, four to six gallons per week. Many people weren't giving even that much to their tomatoes. And they're doing, it's because the drip systems that you all put in, which are great, they're efficient, they put the water out very slowly. So you add up what it takes for the two or three 0.4 gallon per hour emitters around your plant to give it four to six gallons or 10 to 12 gallons, it's gonna have to run for a couple hours. And most people don't run their drip systems for a couple of hours, or you'll have to run it for a pretty long time every day. And most people don't do that. Good rule of thumb, 30 to 35 minutes a day. If you have fast draining soil and you're using a drip system, maybe necessary. Even better in native soil or garden soil, two or three hours every four to six days, something like that. I do 10 to 12 gallons all at once, once a week. That works fine for me because of my soil. But you've got to water deeper or those roots never get down through that nice fancy soil you filter raised planters with into the native soil below. And the poor plants, you hit a heat wave in July or August and you're not giving them what they need. They stress. Well, the first thing that goes when a plant is stressed, blossoms new growth fruit. That's just unfortunate that it's going to affect your, your yield directly by, by drought stressing the plant. You're talking about watering for hours, but if you have a drip system that's on everything, you, you, you wouldn't want to water everything as much as you water tomatoes. Correct. Wouldn't you need a separate system or a separate way of watering your tomatoes? Separate line. I generally split my vegetable garden into deep-rooted plants and shallow-rooted plants. And this goes for whether they're in raised planters or not. None of this applies to containers because that's a different issue because you only have so much root zone. But in the ground, I try to run, I'm never perfect about this. So, you know, I've had, I've, I do it both ways, but I try to run a line for tomatoes, winter squash, by which I mean Hubbard squash, acorn squash, the kind that we keep for the winter. Didn't we talk about that last week? Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Winter squash, okay. Keeper, keeper squash and pumpkins. Those are all deep-rooted plants. And watermelons are fine on this too. They're deep-rooted plants. You water them a lot early in the season to get those roots down. You give them good deep waterings intermittently as the summer goes along. You may make sure they're growing vigorously. I mean, the plant performance is one indicator whether you're doing this right. They're on one line. And everything else, at least in theory, 
He's on another line. That's going to include peppers, eggplant. If I'm growing corn, corn loves a lot of water and it's not terribly deep rooted. Um, basil, things like that are all on another line. I may turn that line on every day when I'm out there doing stuff. I'll go out in the vegetable garden for 45, 50, 60, 90, 120 minutes every day <laughs> until I'm out there doing stuff. Those guys, I just turn on by hand and let it run while I'm there, you know, until the plant, until the soil seems to be where it needs to be. Sometimes I skip it if things are a little cooler, but these are shallow rooted plants, peppers, eggplant, things like that. Yeah, the deeper rooted ones, I do turn it on. I have a timer on it now, so I can set it for 90 minutes. I may run that one full cycle. I may run it two full cycles and I can go anywhere from five to seven days between irrigations with my soil, which is native farm silty loam so you'll have to determine by your soil but yes it is best to split them the really simple way to split them is go out and buy a like five dollar splitter it's just a, a, a y coupling that allows you to turn one on the other off i have these timers that i bought that have saved me a lot of trouble this year so i think if you are thinking about a more complicated garden getting these simple they're not they're not electric or powered in any way they're just a, a timer like your kitchen timer you turn it on for X number of minutes and it runs and it turns off. And I have a bunch of these on my farm this year because I planted a new orchard and this is how I'm watering the young trees. And that way I don't have to walk down and turn them back off again. I know they'll turn themselves off automatically after a certain amount of time. Saved me a lot of trouble. I highly recommend if you really get into gardening, you look into these simple mechanical timers, not battery operated, not power. They're just like your kitchen timer that you use and they run for anywhere from five minutes to three hours if you want to do that. Save me a lot of trouble, but that's yes. the key. Deep watering for the deep rooted plants. And I, think I think we're dating ourselves when you talk about kitchen timers that you turn <laughs> and then they, they go tick, tick, tick and turn themselves off. People don't use those anymore. Do you know how much trouble I had to find one yeah. of those? I wanted yeah. to buy one last year. Yeah, I oh. found one online, some company like eartheasy.com or something like that. They're great. And that's, so I bought several. <laughs> They've been so very, very, very handy. It's good to know that um, those timers that are on your hoses work that way. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. When you get one of these, Make sure you check it after a couple of years to see whether or not the hard water is built up and it isn't turning off right. Yeah, I think it, and one thing I'm going to do as the season is winding down is I'm going to take them off, rinse them out, dry them up and bring them inside and store them. Don't leave them out there during freezing weather where you'll get hard water deposits even worse in them from you know cold, cold causing the salts to precipitate out. Uh, but these are really, really handy and they're not expensive. This is way simpler for me than putting in some kind of mechanical battery operation timer thing to remember is your hose is still under pressure so at some point you should walk along and turn your hose off or else there might be a problem but these well, are great I put those i put those on the faucet not the mm -hmm. hose right you can put it there it depends on your depends on the layout of your farm <laughs> or my backyard as it were anyway great okay. season right now summer summer vegetables winding down although many people are asking my cucumber is still growing should i leave it yeah if it's still growing and flowering a cucumber a zucchini Either of those will still have time if it's flowering for the cucumber or zucchini to form. Assuming it gets pollinated, it will develop properly. A pepper, by the way, will still have time to develop at least to a green pepper and very likely to a red pepper. Because remember, we still have at least six weeks typically of relatively sunny weather, almost always sunny weather for the next six weeks. It changes a little bit, but generally speaking, we're more sunny than not through October. Uh, tomatoes that are green 
and expanding have time to ripen by the end of October. If you're listening to us in a colder climate where you've already dropped below 50, then it's probable that your summer garden is winding down and you probably know that. But squash and cucumbers and things like that still can develop if they're out there and the plants are reasonably healthy. On the other hand, it's also a great time, and this is incredible weather for this, to plant coal crops, lettuces, chard, all those cool season vegetables we talked about last week. If you get the Davis Enterprise, go to the, uh, let's see, what am I in this time? The Fall Home Improvement Guide. You'll find my article and it lists all these things on there. So if you're a Davis Enterprise subscriber, check that out. Hey, we got stuff to do. This is, this is KDRT, which is public radio. That's community radio. That means we rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. So if you like the Davis Garden Show or the other great programming here at KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. Well, you're there. Jitan is back on the air. She's Dr. G. Nothing brings greater rewards than a life filled with love and care for people and the world around us with heart to heart. Host Dr. G inspires and teaches listeners to live life richly and lightly. Check the Davis Enterprise for guests and weekly topics. I spoke with Jitan the other day. She is alternating with another, another individual, another programmer who we'll mention perhaps another time. So every other week, you should be able to hear a new program by Dr. G, our longtime KDRT counselor. <laughs> so Don, what's happening with Tree Davis? We got any stuff coming up to do? We have a big legacy celebration. Once a year, Tree Davis hosts a big event, and we've been doing these out at the Memorial Grove that's been created off of Shasta Drive, just south of the United, uh, University Retirement Center. The legacy celebration will be November 4th, 2 to 4 p.m. You're all invited. Anybody can come. We'd like you to register so we know how many cookies to buy, but other than that, you don't absolutely have to. And I do want to mention that two or three years ago, we started Stewardship Awards. We award individuals, organizations, businesses that have done something really important to care for trees. Okay, and it's a very broad topic. We have awarded a gentleman who is using a bucket and a five gallon, a, a, a radio flyer wagon and two five gallon buckets to water trees for us. We awarded a great parking lot in West Davis. It's 100% shaded by elm trees. We awarded the people who managed the parking lot, but it was the parking lot that received our stewardship <laughs> award that year. So you out there, all of you are invited to submit nominations. And this is nothing formal. Just go to treedavis.org, look on Get Involved, and you'll find a link to Legacy Celebration. And the Stewardship Award nomination form is there. So if there's someone you know that's been carefully watering a tree on a vacant lot, or some group that's been planting trees or pulling weeds away from trees or whatever, we would love to have the public give input for these stewardship awards and they will be announced at the legacy celebration on november 4th so if you could get them in by mid-october that would be great head to treedavis.org click on legacy celebration stewardship awards you can look at some past winners and think of anybody in the community that you think would be someone to highlight that's done something special for our urban forest following on from what you said in our in our uh weather section yeah you wanted to post pose a question to you from john who lives in fair oaks mm -hmm. is it still too early to plant winter annual flower starts such as calendula snapdragon and pansies i'd like to get them a good foothold and don't want to fry them in any hot weather which might be coming again 
It is possible we'll get hot again, but keep in mind that any heat wave that we have at this point would be short duration, even though it has been 100 degrees in the first week or even the second week of October. It was not an epic week-long thing of heat. It was just spiking up over 100. Young seedlings of snapdragons, calendulas, stalks would all be fine with that. The one plant that I have found is affected by temperatures above about 85 is pansies, which are some of our winter favorites. They really stretch and they it just affects them badly. Violas, by comparison, their little flowered cousins don't seem to be as adversely affected. Yeah. Anyone who's grown both Johnny Jump Ups, violas, and then pansies, you know, together we'll find the pansies are great. They're amazing. The flowers are big. We all love them. By April, they're kind of finishing up because the heat is coming on. Well, the, the violas go through April. The Johnny jump ups go into the summer. So we have greater heat tolerance uh, in, in the genus viola, which includes pansies, violas, and Johnny jump ups, all of which are closely related. Snapdragons can take an amazing amount of heat. And I'm bringing in a whole bunch of flats this week because I think this is the perfect time to plant snapdragons. Some of them will bloom right away. If you ever want want to learn about uh, photoperiodism and day length and its effect on flowering and how complicated it is, snapdragons are a good place to start. <laughs> some of them are short day plants, some of them are day neutral. Most modern varieties, if you plant them now, they'll bloom right away. And then that bloom will be there for, you know, that individual spike will be there for a couple weeks and you'll finally deadhead that off, you know, trim it off. And you'll see a whole bunch of stuff ready right underneath it to flush out and grow. And that will usually wait through the winter and start expanding in January, February, more typically, and start blooming heavily late February, March, April is the big month of bloom for snapdragons here. And well into May, and even until we get up into the 90s, snapdragons will continue. So you'll get a lot of bloom out of snapdragons from September planting. And the advantage of planting now is you get more of those shoots from the base. So each plant gives you more bloom. If you plant a regular, let's say rocket variety, common three foot spikes, readily available a lot of garden centers, that plant will take up 18 to 24 inches of space if you plant it now. If you buy them in December, I'll have them then, it'll take up about six inches of space. <laughs> we'll have one big spike of bloom, which will be pretty, but that's all you get for a while and it won't bloom again until probably March. But the, the earlier plant you put in will have all that stuff to come up from the base and give you a nice big, not just initial bloom, but continue well into the spring and early summer. And here's a hint about snapdragon. They've become one of my favorite winter annuals for this reason. I cut them back instead of cutting them off. I don't cut them to the ground. I just cut off the spent blossoms. And if they're in a place where I don't mind the fact they won't bloom through the summer, they will grow through the summer. Some of them will put out little bits of bloom, but for the most part, you have this little thing that looks like, I don't know, a 12 to 18 inch shrub. And then it cools off. And right now, already in my backyard, ones that I planted last year and even the year before are spiking up and getting ready to bloom again. So they will function as a perennial, as will many of the annuals that we, things we call annuals that we sell you at garden centers. We'll cut, you'll come in and you'll see winter annuals, big sign up, and it'll have snapdragons and pansies and violas and calendulas and such. Some of those are true annuals, calendulas, which grow to a certain point, flower, seed, that plant is done. They reseed enough to function like perennials, but the plant is an annual. Others, like violas in the right climate and like snapdragons, even here, can be short-lived perennials and give lots and lots of bloom. Just one hint with snapdragons, aside from the fact they need full sun, it's real important. Aww. As Yes, I'm sorry. As you're buying them, turn the pack over, look on the undersides of the leaves, and look for any rust spores. Rust is a fungus that attacks snapdragons, much like the rust that attacks your roses and your lawn and so forth. It's not the same rust, thank goodness, but it is specific to snapdragons. If you have a problem with rust on your snapdragons, 
we're to blame. The nursery is to blame. You bought it with the spores on it and because we weren't checking them. It's a seed borne disease. If the seedling grower, the wholesaler isn't monitoring for them, they'll get into the channels, they'll get out to the retailers. If the retailers are not checking for them, you'll buy them. And next thing you know, you have rust on your snapdragons. It's very hard to get rid of. At that point, they shouldn't be perennial in your yard. When they're done blooming, you should cut every one of them down, put them in a bag, get rid of them and let your yard be snapdragon free for a couple of months, like through the summer. But if you don't get rust, the plants can go on and on and on. So check them as you're buying them for those little orange rust spores on the undersides of the leaves. Other than that, snapdragons are pretty darn easy to grow. And we now have little miniature ones that only get a foot tall. Those are day neutral if you want to do your photo period research, meaning they'll bloom all the time. I've had those blooming in the middle of the summer. They get about a foot, little moundy shrub of snapdragonish. And uh, we have a bunch that are in the 18 inch range, which are very popular because they make great bedding plants, beautiful for a display in the garden. And of course, the old fashioned cutting types, rocket, tetra, UC hybrids and so forth. They get up to three feet or more with these amazing colors and cutting stems. Well, John had a wonder. He, he wondered whether or not uh, when he should start seeds of calendula snapdragon pansies if he wanted to grow things from seeds. Right how, now. How does that work? Right you now. Can, you can do seeds now? Yeah, we were, we were starting seeds for some of those things in our nursery in the greenhouses we have there back in early August. So we'd have them for sale in late September, hopefully early October. Um, that You can do them now. Right now is fine. Um, I would probably not direct seed out in the garden just because so many things like to eat seedlings. If you, if you don't have a problem with things coming in and devouring young seedlings in your garden, this is a perfectly good time to start things directly out there. Watering daily, of course, will be important. If the north wind blows, water again midday. Uh, so it's easier for most people people to start things in small pots in a more sheltered location like on their porch or someplace under a tree or something where it's just a little more sheltered primarily from wind more than anything uh, but this is a great time to go right now with a lot of those winter annuals and they're very very easy from seed the ones that i would say are a little tricky sweet peas we keep trying to figure out a way to grow and sell sweet pea plants to you all <laughs> and they are really a pain they're one they germinate fine but they're very fragile Okay, so they're very breakable. Just shaking the, the, the pack wrong, they'll snap off. They're, they're just one of the more tender plants out there. Their roots grow very rapidly. And so they fill the whatever they're in very quickly and get root bound and tangled. And then they're hard to get apart. So most people do direct seed sweet peas out in the ground. However, I will say our feathered nemesis, the white crowned sparrows, love sweet pea seedlings to the point that I've had a lot of trouble getting them going here. So I will do them in pots, but I generally do them in the kind of pot where you can plant the pot right in the ground. Usually they're made out of peat moss, peat pellets. Yeah, decomposable. Yeah. Decompose, you can part, stop them in the, start them in those as soon as they're up. I use the peat pellets very commonly, but the little peat pots also work. Lift one up, look at the bottom. Within about two days, of those seeds breaking ground, the roots are hitting the bottom and already pushing out the bottom of that little thing. At that point, take them out, plant them, take the 30 or 40 strawberry baskets that you accumulated over the summer for this purpose, <laughs> okay? Put one over each seedling and leave it on there until the seedling is pushing up against it about four to six weeks from now. Take it off, monitor carefully. And if you've got a problem with these birds, then you might need to cover the whole zone for a little while as well. My damage on peas and sweet peas from white crowned sparrows and, and snails is mostly while well, they're under six inches tall. 
So that's when they really can decimate them. Yeah, I suppose they could come in later and do damage, but they just don't seem to. They just seem to like the young seedlings. So getting them past that four to six inch stage may require protective measures. Certainly will at my place. Hey, Lois, are the white crown sparrows back yet? I haven't seen any. I haven't heard about any. So plant my pea, plant some peas and they'll come back. I guarantee it. Well, they're going to come back anyway, whether you plant peas or not. What is so, it, Don, October, you talk about North those little peat pot things yeah. that one can buy commercially. Yep. But what about using a cardboard egg carton and cut it up so you've got each one of those little things? That works fine, doesn't it? Sure, as long as there's a hole in the bottom, and you know, which some of them do, some of them don't. A hole in the bottom to allow the roots to get right out, not bind up in the you know in the egg carton itself. It obviously has to be cardboard that isn't laminated, preferably, right. so it really does decompose. So they still put out eggs in those. Um, and I have done them in regular pots and done them in six packs. And I have growers that do that. And I carefully transplant them. But when I'm breaking, you know, a quarter of them as I go, I imagine a mom trying to do this with a three-year-old. <laughs> so the peas, and this is a long digression, but sweet peas, this is the time to plant them for bloom either midwinter in the case of the early flowering types or late winter, early spring and into almost summer in the case of the more traditional types. But you, this is perfect weather for it. Just get them going now if you, if you possibly can, if you're going to grow sweet peas. If you haven't grown sweet peas in a while, they're pretty amazing, actually. They do need something to climb up onto, like a, just a three or four foot loose trellis is fine. I've used wire, I've used even netting. They don't have a heavy vine, but they want to scramble up onto something. When they get going, they scramble fast. They'll go to six feet or more in the case of some of the old fashioned types. And so you need to plan for that or else they'll just run all, all over everything else. Tomato cages work great, just for the record. Even those small ones are pretty good. They at least get some up and then they can kind of cascade back down to the ground. And bear in mind this is going to be out somewhere blooming all the way to may so put it in the garden where you're not going to be trying to put in tomatoes early in the season but you can you can get them up onto something a light structure of some sort really quite easy to grow here they just don't like extreme heat and of course they're vulnerable to a variety of pests when they're young so here's a thought don if one were to plant a bunch of sweet peas and then put one of those small tomato cages mm -hmm. over it mm -hmm. um, and then take netting or something like that and drape it all around over it down to the bottom, bury yep. the bottom for the heck, you know, then they would be safe from the birds yep. and they would have something to climb on and it would, it would take care of everything. And yeah, then when too tall, you just tuck it back in. Frost blanket, seedling blanket uh, works well. And as I say, get them up past that vulnerable stage and then just gently pull it off and put it away well, for other purposes. It, that has worked very well, actually. Yeah. I'm not even thinking about the seed blanket, but but rather the the bird netting. Well, I'll tell you, if they, if, they, if they grow through the bird netting at the end yeah. of the season, you're just going to throw the whole thing away because it'll be impossible right. to disentangle the, the sweet peas. So for more ecologically conscious people, go ahead and cover with frost blanket, seedling blanket, it's called, and then just pull that off when they seem big enough, seem like they're past the vulnerable stage and just fold that up and put it away. And in all the but years- But you need something to climb on. Yeah, they need the, the, the tomato cage or something like that. And again, it doesn't have to be a full-on trellis. It can just be a bird netting does work, uh, wire works. I've used a variety of things. I typically am using concrete wire because I bought rolls of it years ago and I find that extremely useful in the garden, but something to cover them with in the early stages. One other thing to mention, we're in zone nine, USDA zone nine, sunset zone 14, which is comparable to eight and nine in this regard. Twice in the years I've been here, peas and sweet peas were frozen to death. 
twice. It has happened. We got down to 16 degrees in 1990. The sweet peas were the least of my concerns, but they were definitely killed. (laughs) And it happened again in, I think, 1998. And I had damage on them as recently as a few years ago when I had a great row of peas going out there. The, The birds hadn't eaten them. We got to 23 degrees on our farm and they were injured, but they recovered. So we do know that the low temperature range for garden peas of the type we're talking about and sweet peas seems to be the low 20s. If you're living in zone eight, you should probably plant in the late winter, early spring. But uh, here we can plant in the USDA zones nine and certainly zone 10, plant now for winter and early and even mid spring bloom. On your website, you have a calendar and it talks about things that you can plant and you can harvest and has pretty pictures and all that good stuff. And I encourage listeners to go check it out. What's your website called on? Redwoodbarn.com. That's it. Let's talk about dirt. Dirt. Well, before we talk about dirt, I want to talk about mildew. Mm. Um, we got a question here. What to do about powdery mildew on a big crepe myrtle tree? It blooms fine. It looks okay. Just the leaves. <coughs> Should it be treated? What is powdery mildew? And, uh, how, you know, what would you do in a big crepe myrtle tree? Um, old varieties of crepe myrtle get mildew. Modern varieties don't get mildew. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there's your answer, but uh, that doesn't help. Do it with a shovel, right? <clears throat> Someone who has a 45-year-old crepe myrtle very likely has powdery mildew on it because all the old varieties of Ligerstromia indica, typically, not all of them, but they, they were typically prone to powdery mildew. And so you would plant them in a hot, dry climate like ours, and they grow fine anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. They would bloom well. Some people would spray with fungicides. Some people wouldn't. You know, the growth and the bloom is not affected that much by powdery mildew. It's just the appearance of the plant. So we didn't worry too much about it, but we looked for varieties that were more resistant. Well, it's been at least 60, 70 years ago, the USDA hybridized laggers and various breeders like Carl Whitcomb in Oklahoma, Lagerstromia indica with a species called Lagerstromia faurii. My first encounter with Lagerstromia faurii was as a big, beautiful plant in my grandfather's backyard in Pasadena, which he had planted in about 1945 or six. And uh, by the time I saw it, 20 plus years later, was a 30 foot tree, magnificent canopy, white flowers. I don't remember any mildew on it at all. And of course, the beautiful uh, trunk that they develop. That is the parent of not that tree, that species is a parent of all of these modern hybrids that the USDA and others introduced, excuse me, the US National Arboretum and others introduced. Natchez, which is white and gets to 30 by 30. Tuscarora, which gets 25 feet upright. Muscogee, 25 to 30 foot with equal spread and impervious to mildew. And there's a bunch of others that they introduce that are resistant to mildew. So in my opinion, no good nursery should sell the older kinds now but some do. So when you're looking for crepe myrtles, be sure to look for one of the new hybrids, check the mildew resistance. It should be at least good, if not very good or high, and you won't have this problem. I don't have an easy answer for someone who has a fungus on a tree. Um, There's no drench that I really think is going to be effective and spraying a tree like that for powdery mildew just obviously isn't particularly practical. Not hurting the tree all that much, just unsightly. So this really is one of those and take your disease triangle, the host, the pest, the environment. In this particular case, change your host. In other words, get the right kind of crepe myrtle. You won't have a problem with powdery mildew. If you do have it, try to uh, keep your gardeners from heading the trees back, that hedging technique they seem to like to do to crepe myrtles, crepe murder as we call it. Have them thin it instead. Have them, or you can do this. Don't prune it at all if you don't want to. They don't need it. But if you want to enhance airflow, 
and get better light penetration to reduce either the infection or the spread of mildew when it does infect, then thin it out. Just take the upright suckers that pop up in them, take crossing branches out, just get, you know, open it up for better airflow. It'll make a more attractive plant anyway. And that will reduce the likelihood of the mildew being as bad. It can, it can basically be a way to manage the existing powdery mildew. Long run, your best bet. If you're looking for a crepe myrtle, look for one of those ones that has those names, Natchez, Muscogee, Tuscarora, Pecos, um, Catawba, uh, there's a bunch of them, and they all were introduced. Primarily, primary consideration in breeding and selection was mildew resistance. There's one exception I want to throw out there that is not a hybrid. It's Lagerstromia indica. It's the variety Dynamite, and that is that red, red, red one that everybody wants, fire engine red. Carl Whitcomb, who bred that one by a process of growing 160,000 seedlings over seven generations of crosses and roguing through them for dark red or real red color bronze burgundy color to the new growth and complete mildew resistance came up with one he's walking down the row of his seedlings and he said wow that one's dynamite so that's what he named it <laughs> it was selected for mildew resistance even though it's not a hybrid like the other ones i described so you'll find it labeled lagerstromia i know this is getting complicated but lagerstromia indica dynamite Red Rocket is very similar. Same breeder introduced that one. Good mildew resistance, true red color, 15 to 25 foot tree. So it will work as well. So if you're buying a crepe myrtle, buy one that's mildew resistant. If you have mildew on it, thin it out a little bit and be happy with it because it still blooms okay in our climate anyway. So looking at the messages we've gotten over the, the month, <laughs> I have one here from our friend Gordon, who's in Montreal, Canada. Yes. And and he's an avid gardener. I I'm always astonished what he tries to grow up there oh, in Canada. I'd be oh, doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, hello again. I am looking for some advice on what to do with a couple of magnolia seedlings I was given. I believe they are the pink saucer magnolia. The mature plants are hardy here, but I don't know if the seedlings should go in the ground for the winter or if I should keep them indoors until they are larger. Would they benefit from a dormant period? Our climate zone is roughly the same as northern New York or Vermont. Long, <laughs> cold, winter. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, I assume that in those climates, you plant hardy woody plants in the late summer, early fall, whatever that feels like in your area. You probably mulch around them and then the snow comes and covers them up and protects them. And uh, I assume you get plenty of snow cover in Montreal, right? And then the snow melts away in the spring and they leaf out just normally. Uh, but that's a that's a question that's kind of out of our wheelhouse here because we don't deal with that kind of climate. I don't know where you would hold it through the winter. It does need, it does benefit from dormancy. I mean, deciduous plants that have a dormant period, if they don't get that dormant period, in some cases it weakens them. They don't leaf out properly or they don't, uh, you know, they don't grow as vigorously the following year. I could do a little research on this, but my best guess is that you're going to plant while the soil is still workable, cover, mulch somehow, protect it, you know, the young plant, and then it protects itself in the wintertime by the nature of its genetics and your snow cover. That's my best guess. Any listeners in upstate New York or Saskatchewan that want to send me a note <laughs> about when you plant woody plants in that climate, that would be what I would do based on what I've read. Uh, but I, and as I say, uh, um, I'm thinking it would be better for the plant to be outside than to, for you to try and hold it through the winter inside somewhere. That would be a challenge. That's the biggest issue I have right there. I know that Vermont has some really good plant experts, yeah. and don't they have a, a 
you know, like like here we have people to give advice. Don't they yeah. have that in Vermont? University. Maybe that would be the thing to do if that's if this, that's the same climate zone as you have. Yeah, I don't know how they I don't know how cooperative extension works in Canada, but in the US cooperative extension is a cooperative relationship between the county government and the University of California in our case, or whatever land grant university you happen to have and there's land grant universities all over the country, going back to the 19th century, uh, they have farm advisors and they probably have a similar term there in in Canada for people who advise in agriculture and I would think anyone planting tree crops in that climate would have a very similar question. So that could go to your local cooperative extension, whatever it's called, uh, care of your local university. And I'll be curious what answer you might get. But yes, in the United States, I'm sure in Vermont, New York, they have farm advisors just like we do here. They could at least know who to direct the question to. Again, my assumption is that planted out in late summer, early fall, should probably be feeling like fall there by now. Um, they would go proper dormancy. And the only question we have then really is, is that wood hardened enough to make it through a Canadian winter? That's a good question. So I appreciate the, the correspondence. Let us know what you hear. I'll be very curious because we have listeners all over the world. And thank you, Gordon, for writing to us. And we hope you will write back. Yeah. Okay. So the next one, now this is one, you know, listeners, you, you, there's some, some things that you don't know about us. <laughs> we record these shows and we just kept going and going. We talk a little bit too long. We have a 58 minute show. So if we've got, you know, 65 minutes of stuff, Don has to cut a little bit out. Well, when we go a half an hour over, sometimes Don cuts an entire chunk mm -hmm. and does it, it never gets on the air. We answered this question so thoroughly. It took about half an hour and it didn't make it on the air. So our apologies to our listener who wrote in with this question, and we will answer it again. This time, we promise not to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You never know. <laughs> well, Don, if you cut it, you best tell me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's one of the things is he edits the show. And so yeah. I, I never know if something got cut until later on he tells me. Okay. First of all, I love your show and I really appreciate all the helpful information you provide. I notice that as times goes by, soil disappears from my pots. There is some soil that drops off a hole in the bottom, but it's just not that much. I believe the soil breaks down over time. What should I do to replenish it? Can I add potting soil to the top? Should I remove the plant and replant it with more soil? Thank you, Gaina from Davis. Yeah, and as I say, we may have talked about this before, but the the it gets into a much broader discussion of what's in potting soil. Your basic potting soil when I first learned about it, when I was making it all the time in the botany department, when I worked there in the greenhouses, consists of sand, peat moss, and some kind of compost. That's your that's your foundation of most potting soils. We call that one the UC mix. Cornell has a mix. It's very similar. But there's three basic ingredients in different proportions. So, so there's sand, which is a mineral. There's peat moss, which is organic, but breaks down very slowly. And there's some kind of compost. And the biggest difference, if you're buying potting soils regionally, is going to be what that source of compost is. It's the most inexpensive part of the potting soil, but it's also something that's going to be sourced locally. They're not going to truck in. Peat moss is trucked in from Canada. You know, that's that's why it's expensive. Compost is going to be in our area. 
from the lumber industry. They have all these Douglas fir shavings that are then piled up and composted to a certain temperature and broken down to a certain level and then sold to companies that mix it in potting soil and other purposes. And in the southeastern United States, I believe it's from pine and there'll be pine bark, which is a byproduct of their lumber industry down there. Lots of research on finely milled pine bark as a potting soil additive. That's the part that's breaking down is the compost. You, the sand doesn't break down, sand is sand. Okay, peat moss breaks down, but very, very slowly. It's an organic material, but it, it does decompose, to use the word literally, very slowly. But the compost part, which is chunks of wood, may have leaf material in it, depending on what they sourced. It might be ground up bark. It's gonna vary as to how quickly it breaks down. But of the three parts that are your basic component, it's the one that's breaking down. So when you plant a bunch of stuff in a barrel and you fill that barrel almost to the top, and then you plant your flowers or your shrubs or whatever, you'll watch over the course of that summer as the whole level of soil drops one to two inches in the case of many potting soils, four to six inches if there's a lot more organic part in there. Remember the organic part is the least expensive part for the manufacturer. So higher organic soils are just gonna break down more quickly. As they break down, they're doing important things. There's nutrients tied up in that organic part. There's nitrogen in there, there's phosphorus in there, there's potassium in there. Uh, and those are breaking down and becoming available to the plant. So they're basically one of the ways that a plant is getting fed when it's growing in a container. But also they're disappearing. Exactly. They are, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're breaking down and, and being used up. And so over time, the soil in your pot will settle. You have two basic choices of potting soil when you go to most nurseries. We all carry lots of bag products and you can spend a lot of time out there reading the ingredients. They're always labeled with the ingredients on the back of the bag by federal law. So it says exactly what's in it. It doesn't tell you the proportions, but it tells you what's in it. If you're putting in a woody plant like a tree, you're going to grow a citrus in a barrel or I have Japanese maples in barrels or something like that. I will go for one that's higher in mineral content. In our case, at our nursery, it's either the citrus mix or the cactus mix. And people kind of look at you funny when you're saying, use cactus mix for this plant, it's not a cactus. They're saying we're using that because it's primarily a mineral soil, mostly sand, some peat moss, some compost, more lava rock, more pumice. Well, those are mineral, not organic. So that soil isn't gonna break down nearly as quickly as the highly organic soils, which we also sell. If you walk in, you're growing a particular annual crop, such as a tomato or something like that, we'll sell you that. It's more got more nutrients in it. They usually add more fertilizers to those. So for your annual flowers, that's great for your tomato, your cannabis, your peppers, whatever. Those are great, but they will settle quite a bit. So for you to put a woody plant in a highly organic soil, you're going to have a problem in about two years. I have this problem. I make these mistakes. I planted a really cool miniature Japanese maple, high value tree in a barrel. And I wasn't really thinking about what bag of stuff went in there. And I used our regular potting soil. That was two years ago and level has dropped six inches because I use one of our primarily organic soils. Across the driveway is a Japanese maple, I have a lot of them, Japanese maple in a barrel that I planted primarily in our citrus mix. I did about three to one citrus mix with about one part of the, this fancier, you know, for annual crops potting soil that I sell. That's only dropped about an inch in the same time period. So I've got a problem with that Japanese maple that's in that barrel. I frequently top off planters where the soil level has dropped. I have no problem adding two, three, four inches of new fresh soil of the same type 
to the planter. If it's annuals, I'll just cut them off, bury them, dig through them and plant the new stuff right on top of them. Sometimes they sprout up again. Dianthus will, salvias will. Sometimes that's the end of it. But I'm just going and using the same soil and, and adding more on top. Can't really bury a Japanese maple. I don't feel comfortable putting four to six inches of soil around the stem of a $300 plant. And so on that one, I do have a bit of a problem, which is that I'm probably going to have to tip it out, help from a friend, pull it out of the barrel, backfill the barrel with a sandier or more mineral soil and replant it back in the same container. I'll probably trim off some of the roots as I do that to sort of semi bonsai it. But the point is that I made a mistake using primarily organic soil for a woody plant. If you're mainly growing flowers, or things you don't care that much about perennials where you know if, it, if, it, if you're done with it or you don't carry care too much topping it off with fresh soil is fine and i do that quite regularly i try to use the same soil i used before so you don't get a weird phase change between one type of soil and another you can do that you can just go ahead and top them off and plant fresh but if you're planting woody plants if you're planting succulents and cactus which need good drainage if you're planting citrus to grow it for a long term five to ten years in a barrel try to buy a soil that's more mineral the drawback of that is it won't have as much nutrients in it. These fancy annual potting soils for annuals, they've added all kinds of organic fertilizers just so that you don't even have to feed them ever during the whole course of the summer. They have bat guano, they have seabird guano, they have dehydrated chicken manure, they have fish meal, crab meal, different companies use different things for the nitrogen source. They tend to have enough slowly but steadily releasing organic nitrogen that it's at least one full season of fertilizer so that's a great aspect of that and these other ones that are more mineral don't have that so if you're growing citrus in a planter and i've sold you the citrus mix or you're growing something in a cactus mix the plant will probably run out of nutrients faster so you'll have to figure out a way to fertilize it and that's easy you can top dress with a fancy fancy soil that has some nutrients in it you can use osmocote the resin coated materials you can mix up fish emulsion and water with it whatever you prefer to do but you'll have to do that more often in the soils that are predominantly mineral but they will last longer so one thing to keep in mind is any plant that gets in a container for a very long time like a woody plant that you're going to keep in a tub i have some that have been in containers for a long time will run out of nutrients pretty quickly as i talked about so you'll need to fertilize it regularly sometimes you can't replant it i mean think about someone with a big ficus in their house and we used to work for customers when we did interior you know plant scaping for people we'd walk in and there'd be a giant ficus in a barrel sitting in there that's as big as it can go you know you've run out of barrel size so you have to keep supplementing you have to water of course more regularly you have to keep supplementing the nutrients there's ways to do that simplest is just to add fertilizer or again you can top dress with some kind of nice potting soil mix like that that can can provide nutrients that way you don't have enough of a barrel to plant a 50 foot fiddly fig in your in your atrium uh, so you're just going to stunt it and think about bonsai, which is the extreme of this, where you're intentionally constraining the roots. In our climate, you have to water bonsai every day in the summer, spring, summer, and fall. And you have to fertilize them lightly, but regularly, because otherwise they'll run out of nutrients. So they're pretty high maintenance plant here. But what you're doing is you're con intentionally constricting the root zone on that plant. You can do that. It depends on your expectations. I'll say this. You can grow any plant in any soil or even not in soil hydroponics is an example as long as you provide it what it needs in the way of minerals nutrients so i had some berries in a, a 
tub of straight shavings for four years. They were sitting out in a shade, in a shade house. They got watered automatically. Every time I was feeding, I'd make sure to throw some fertilizer on them. They grew fine. They produced fine. They were growing literally in livestock bedding. So that's the first thing is that as long as you provide what they need, it doesn't make that much difference what your soil is. But for you as a home gardener, you choose a soil that allows you to go at least a couple of days without having to water. It allows you to go a month or more without having to fertilize it. Because if you grow in essentially sterile media, you have to feed. When I worked in the botanical conservatory, we had trees in there that were 40 years old in the same pot. How can you do that? Well, we ran fertilizer through the whole irrigation system of that greenhouse. Every time they got water, they got a very light liquid feeding. And so they could, they were stunted, but we needed them for a particular lab that needed a member of that plant family. So we kept growing this 60 foot tropical tree in a five gallon bucket year after year after year by giving it the fertilizer that it needed. And of course it was getting watered every single day. So potting soils retain moisture. And the faster draining, the more mineral they are, the less moisture they retain, so the more often you have to water them. Potting soils retain and provide nutrients, but the more mineral they are, the less of that they retain and supply. So if it's a faster draining mix, you end up having to fertilize more often and in many cases, water more often. I think I sent over to Lois a couple examples of special formula recipes that I've handed out over the years. And let's go over two of these. So let's talk about anthuriums, which I... I believe are some of the most beautiful plants that one can have. And I would grow them in a pot if I could. So it says soil mix for anthuriums, one part peat moss, one part perlite, one part pumice, orchid bark, citrus planting mix. Yeah. So we're adding is that all three or is it any of those three? Any of those three. So what okay. you have there is something very fine in the case of peat moss that retains moisture, something that does the opposite, perlite, which enhances drainage, and even more additive for retaining, for enhancing drainage because anthuriums need really good drainage. Uh, they're very, very, very prone to rot. So when you buy an anthurium, these are those cool things that look like calla lilies, but with brightly colored flowers. You've been to Hawaii, they have mountain garden beds there, but they're pretty cool houseplants. And some of them are, these newer hybrids are actually pretty easy to grow. We just got in some dwarf ones that only get about a foot tall and they're blooming they're very cool we took them right out of the soil mix they came in which was straight peat moss as far as i could tell not a good thing for the home gardener and we put them into this mix which has got peat moss but also things to enhance the drainage they're not high feeders you don't need a lot of nutrients for anthuriums in fact you can burn them pretty easily with houseplant fertilizer so this should cover what they need at least for six to twelve months at which point you may need to refresh the soil but notice we've taken a normal soil mix and increased great increase the drainage and the aeration of that soil mix for this particular plant. When we're potting things up for people, and we routinely do this, especially college students coming in right now, welcome to town, folks. Um, the school year just began, and we'll say, did you want us to repot this for you? Because we do find that almost always the houseplant is ready to move up to a larger size, as we've told you all many times, and they have no way to do that. They live in the dorms. They don't have potting soil. They don't have a bigger pot. We don't even charge for it. We just charge for the soil, and they're just amazed that we do this, and the reason we do it is we want to put them in something that drains better, and we want to put them in a soil mix that contains some nutrients, so we know they're going to get better results that way. So what we typically do is take a very good potting soil and add more pumice. We do that to almost anything we plant. 
just add more pumice for faster drainage because we know that's going to help people avoid overwatering with house plants almost all overwater rather than underwater uh, so that we have found is a very is it kind of a, a key to success for novice gardeners with house plants is to take a good potting soil but even then enhance the drainage a little bit more and you'll see these things we're adding you know uh, pumice things like that they're almost all to enhance the drainage and your you have a secret agenda on that. If you repot that plant for those those folks, they'll probably succeed, which means yes. they might come back. Yes, yes, we're selling success. That's the way yes. we put it. The quick question we always get, how big a pot should you do? Well, just if it's in a six inch pot, go to eight. If it's an eight inch pot, go to 10. Over potting, going from six inch up to 10 or 12, can lead people to overwater. That extra soil there retains moisture and just increases the likelihood of root rot. So we prefer to go up about two inches at a time in diameter. So the other question we often get is, what's the best time of year to repot your house plants? And do it when you can get the job done, clean up, get it back in the house and protect it from extreme heat or extreme cold. So that's usually a milder time of year. That's all. So Ilya from Tiburon writes, my persimmon tree, I got it from Redwood Bar Nursery, bare root last winter. Mm-hmm. is looking sad. Black spots all over the leaves and on new branches. She attached a photo. Is this some damage? Does it need fertilizer? Not enough water? Please let me know your thoughts. A mature persimmon tree on the next block looks way better than this youngster. Many thanks in advance for your opinions. Yeah, and the neighbor's persimmon has roots that have gotten out and are drawing nutrients and moisture from other sources. The black speckling that you get on the leaves of persimmons is usually sunburn, even in Marin County, certainly here in the valley. And it happens typically, if you look at a healthy persimmon, it's got a waxy coating on the leaf. Uh, They're very thick and have a waxy protective layer. And as they get drought stress, wherever you're listening, that waxy layer gets thinner. This is true of most plants that have that protective layer as it thins out if there's drought stress and they become more vulnerable to sunburn. Some plants sunburn, they scorch like citrus leaves. You can, you can show someone, hey, this leaf was pointing towards the sun. Look how it yellowed on this portion. It's just literally sunburn like we get on our skin. Others get an edema-like speckling. Citrus will do that as well, things like persimmons. And so these black spots that you're seeing on there are not actually a disease, at least as far as I can tell from the picture. It's environmental and it was stressed due to having been drought stressed at some point when it was hot, even in Marin County. Uh, and then the plant recovered from it. So you weren't quite watering it enough at an important important time. So you probably need to widen out your watering zone next season or for the remainder of this season, but also especially next season, make a wider watering zone, water deeper if you can, if your soil allows that more often if you can't. I realize that some people in coastal areas don't have deep, rich agricultural fertile soils such as Lois and I have. They have sand on top of sandstone or something like what I first gardened with in coastal San Diego. So when I tell you to deep water and your water runs off after 20 minutes, you know that you have to adjust your watering accordingly. You may have to go wider. And that's pretty much what I'm seeing there is a little bit of drought stress at an important time this summer. No, it doesn't need fertilizer and we don't generally feed persimmons all that much, but I do sometimes fertilize young trees with nitrogen primarily. And I'll do it in the fall. If uh, if they're still in leaf, I'll throw some nitrogen on there and water it in so they take it up and store it for the next year. Or I'll do it in the spring as they leaf out or both, depending on what it is. But I suspect you don't have a deficiency of anything there. Mostly what you're seeing is the speckling that we get, environmental cause being sunburn exacerbated by drought. Thanks for the, the note. That's a great picture, by the way. You've been listening to The Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.